the Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From getting fired for being pregnant, which is insane, to getting hired at a quote-unquote evil corporation, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Matt. Yeah. Can I tell you a story real quick? Let's hear it. Okay, so I want to tell you a story about a guy named Mike. He was getting really annoyed, and he had to bury all of his feelings because the Zoom interview was about to start. He was on round 11 of an interview process. Say it again, a round 11 of an interview process. And he's wondering, should I say something? Like, at what point do I either say hire me or don't? But before he could answer his own question, the Zoom meeting started, and round 11 of the interview went fantastic. Afterwards, they told Mike, Hey, we're going to let you know in a couple of weeks if you get the position. Two weeks went by. It felt like two months. But one morning, he's starting his day. He sees the email he's looking for. Dear Mike, thanks so much for your time and commitment to this interview process. There were many qualified candidates, including yourself. Unfortunately, Mike didn't have to read another word. Because the only thing you could think of was where he could go to yell obscenities at the top of his lungs without scaring his neighbors. This is a juicy topic and spawned by multiple posts on Fishbowl. Incredibly appropriate, I should say, too, as we head into the beginning of a new year where, you know, we've been talking about this last, you know, last quarter, the last several months of, of 2022. The writing's on the wall. The headwinds are there. Companies had started to announce layoffs. So... I think a lot of us are getting in that kind of prep phase for interview mode again. We're dusting off resumes. We're just reviewing what we think we've learned over the past two to three years at our current jobs. And so I think this story probably rings true and maybe frightens a lot of us. Before we get started, as always, uh, my name is Matt Simbouli, co-founder of Fishbowl. Excited for another episode of Lonely Office. Today, we have my uh, loyal co-host, Aaron Calafate, storyteller extraordinaire and producer and storyteller. We have a recurring guest, stand-up comedian, as well as a, a producer and writer on several acclaimed shows, including the show Rami and Mo. Uh, I think Rami's on Hulu and Mo's on Netflix. Azhar Uzman. Yo, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, 2023, it feels like we're in the future. I didn't realize in the future you have to go through 11 rounds of interviews to get a job. <laughs> it sounds insane to me. If someone tried to interview me to more, you know, like more than twice, honestly, I'd be like, I don't want to work for you, bro. You're indecisive. You know, like a great, a great leader is decisive. And that's really what great business people do all day is make decisions. If you can't, if you can't make a decision after 10 plus rounds of interviews, it's insane. I'm, tap, I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out. I don't know. Yeah. What this guy, yeah. That's crazy to me. I think that's really astute. And yeah, maybe just to kind of, gear up and, and get us going on this conversation. Six interviews, eight, 10, like what's the number? I don't, I don't think we're going to necessarily tackle that, provide a solution for what the number is on the show today. But the first thought I had when I was, you know, you shared this post, Aaron, was that, you know, the, the maxim time is money probably has never rung more true than now. Ever since the pandemic, workers, all of us, we've been valuing our time in ways I don't think any one of us had truly anticipated. It could be in the form of shorter commutes, less aimless work meetings, and uh, just more time to spend on things we really care about. So like time, especially now with the advent of the new year, is on everyone's minds. And so when you hear a story like that, I think the first thing you say is like, geez, how much money am I losing going through 11 interviews? And maybe to kick us off here, there was a really interesting study by Nick Bloom from Stanford University where they actually asked and I think it hits on this topic tangentially or, you know, it overlaps. It's like, what is the value, amenity value of remote work for working professionals? Meaning like, if I'm a working professional making a certain salary, let's call $150,000 a year, how much less am I willing to take by giving me my time back in the form of remote work? And I, and I think it's all about time. And that's why it's appropriate. This, you know, this topic is appropriate even for the interview piece. It turns out, that answer is based on a wide survey around 7% of your pay. If you're making $150,000 a year, basically you're willing to give up $10,000 more or less for the benefit of getting your time back. And I found that interesting to relate to this story because, you know, 10 interviews is like God knows how much, you know, let's call it 
10, 10 hours of your time. How do you value that? So there's a post on, on Fishbowl, which really kind of sparked this conversation. And it asks, what's the highest number of interview rounds you've gone through? I'm going through these comments and one says, uh, highest proposed number 10, highest actually went through six. One says six and got rejected. Six is another one. I see a 10, a nine, a senior manager says seven with Apple, but I backed out during the offer prep stage. Wow, must've had something nice around the bend. 10 interviews, uh, nine with LinkedIn. Uh, someone said nine with Goldman and got rejected. Someone said two and it hurt. <laughs> so it's like, look, nine, dude, there was one, there was a co- there was a, like a vice president that says nine rounds, 13 total interviews. And then got the job and took it. That gamble worked out for, for a lot of people, man. And especially like, I mean, our guy, Mike, in the story and myself, I've been through this where it's like, it doesn't work out. I was always looking at it and felt that employers, in my experience, were so just disconnected from what it was like for someone trying to get a job. A lot of the times it's like, yo, just give me a yes or no. Like Mike is saying in the question, at what point do we say, just give me a yes or no? But when you're getting dragged along in the process and you're waiting and you're going through hoops and then to not get it, there's nothing but a loss there. So that's what I've always experienced. I think that's what a lot of people in the comments and across the board generally feel from the employee perspective. But let's be fair here, Matt. Again, like I'm not trying to put you in the position of like, now, please give me answers as the, as the leading voice for all employers who are being inefficient. But to be fair, look, it is hard to interview people. So there is some layers, and especially in this remote or hybrid state that we're in, let's start with that. Maybe we can try to understand the other side of it. When I say we, the, the guy who's been the mics of the world, what are we not seeing, Matt, on that side of thing? And is there somewhere in the middle we can get to? Because clearly 11 interviews, I think, is out of control. Right. I think I think Oscar's going to have a good rebuttal on this, particularly about his point about like tapping out and distrust of the company if you can't figure your shit out after 10 interviews. Like, God, who's Who's the CEO steering this ship? But just just to give the other point of view, have a balanced debate here, discussion. Yeah, I mean, I guess from an employer perspective and having done hundreds of interviews for different companies, including the current one I'm, I'm working for, it's your nightmare scenario that you hire an SBF, that you hire a fraud. And I, I don't mean by that, that you hire a financial fraud, that someone's going to come in and embezzle money. What I mean is that like someone who comes and represents themselves with a certain work ethic and a certain amount of experience, and it's like, Three months into, you're like, oh man, this person is nothing what he billed them for. That that's like the fraud I'm talking about. And like you go out of your way to prevent that. I would argue, like, yeah, 10 is probably the lazy way to do it. I don't think like increasing the um, number of interviews is gonna decrease the probability of hiring a fraud, but that that is the like negative scenario that every employer is consciously thinking about when they go through this stuff. I mean, you mentioned that you have done hundreds of interviews. Obviously, you built successfully built, you know, multiple companies. What is the number, what's the maximum number of rounds <laughs> rounds of interviews you've ever conducted uh, with a prospective employee? I'm just curious. Yeah. The reason why it's tricky to answer that is because smaller companies, you hold like pre-interviews. So some of my most seasoned, mature hires, higher ranking hires, I got to know them personally, a coffee, a drink outside of the interview process. And if you count those meetings, yeah, it'd be 10. But like formal interview in the way I think this post set up or the, the, the story that Aaron set up, I would say no, no, more, no more than four or five, certainly. And then the follow-up to that is like, what is the information that is being gleaned interview after interview that could not be achieved <laughs> in one meeting or two meetings? I mean, no, this is a legitimate question. Like, Yeah. I have seen, there's like, there's a lot of dis... There is dysfunction, right? So, I mean, the principle of silos, everybody who's worked for a big company knows this. Silos exist both in the way the company is structured, but also the way data is shared across organizations, including the recruiting HR. And I'm not talking about any one company. I'm talking generally all big corporations have this problem. And so I think what happens is like, if you have 10 interviewees or interviews happening, there's probably like 10 different stakeholders or let's say eight different departments and they're not aligning. And, you know, frankly, if you're trying to align eight people, you got it wrong. Like there shouldn't be a required consensus of eight independent stakeholders to to go forward on a hire. So I think it's a, probably a dysfunction, a lack of a, a proper process and vetting alignment process that a lot of these companies are going through when when you're going through eight or 10 interviews. And that's that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, the other, if you, if you don't give them the benefit of the doubt, it could be like they're just trying to 
block the candidate from taking a job at a competitor. I've been through a similar experience and to Mike, and it's like, I went, I remember going through, I mean, I drove two hours. I drove two hours to this job I really wanted. It was for like, you're working alongside of a political action committee. It was back in my 20s when I was fired up. And I remember the process was so grueling. And I like the amount of gas I put into my car and the amount of opportunities that I missed, even back in the day, because it was like, this was over 10, 15 years ago. So it's like, this is something that was, it was harder to get. It's not just like, oh, LinkedIn and I can apply to 600 jobs. I mean, it was like that even then it was so taxing, but they went through a whole process. And here's the thing. They ended up choosing someone else over me. I was devastated and I was pissed. I was like, what are you guys doing? But two months later, I saw the position was open. Even on that, even with that logic, I'm not saying you're defending the logic, but even trying to look from the perspective was like, oh, if we just add a bunch of layers to this process, we're going to get, we're going to avoid the nightmare. A lot of times I see it, that that's not the answer, right? Why don't employers think more about the efficiency for the employees? Is it purely just because their interests are prime and they're just willing to go, you know what, like we got to do what we got to do and screw everybody else? I, I don't think it's that evil, right? I don't think it's that like negligent. So Esther, let me ask you. So in, in the entertainment biz, you know, if you're a an executive at some media company who's responsible for green lighting a new series, the buck eventually stops with a person. Meaning, yes, there's some level of like consultation that's happening with other junior producers on a, on his or her staff, but like there's a shotgun position. And I'm curious to hear that because I do think that's similar to the HR process, which is there should be a shotgun position owned by the hiring manager who ultimately is responsible for being informed as much as they feel they need to be informed, but then making the decision. And in cases where I've seen it gone well, usually there's a empowered hiring manager who plays that role to cut through, cut through the noise and just make the decision. It's a great question. And, um, you know, I have some limited experience in this area, but I can tell you, you know, drawing on my own experience, but also you know, close friends who have navigated and have been navigating uh, the treacherous terrain of, of Hollywood and, you know, getting projects made, TV shows, movies, etc. There is a very interesting kind of insidious problem at the heart of the whole enterprise. And it's really fundamentally comes down to, I would say, maybe a lack of alignment of incentives. In other words, misaligned incentives. So I'll give you an example. Every network you've heard of, okay, let's take whatever, HBO. So HBO has, you know, ultimately there's a very few individual humans working at the company who have the actual power to greenlight a project. And greenlight means we're committing funds, right? So there's a whole layer of leadership below that individual who are the people responsible for, you know, finding new ideas, cultivating them, developing things, developing pitches, and then kind of working that up the flagpole and trying to eventually get some executive to greenlight the project. Now, the insidious problem I'm talking about is the fact that there's constantly musical chairs going on of people leaving one company, going to another. You worked at HBO, you get a better offer at whatever, Showtime, you get a better offer at Netflix. So you're only there for two, three, five years. What often happens is a project gets developed, the talent is on the hook, writing scripts, working on a whatever, a movie, let's say, and then a changing of the guard happens person who was championing the project suddenly leaves. Now the new people coming in have a total misalignment of incentives. They don't want to inherit old projects and take them forward because if it's a success, they don't get the credit. And if it's a failure, they take all the blame. <laughs> There's so many great ideas, TV shows, movies, that basically never got to see the light of day because it got stuck in this phenomenon known as development hell in Hollywood. So that is kind of an uh, maybe a, a weirdly you know, analogous situation where there's so much fundamental structural inefficiency that the employee who doesn't really know, doesn't have visibility to, this is what's going on behind the scenes, just feels the whole time like they're getting their, you know, their, their chain jerked around and has no idea behind the black box what's actually going on. Right. Like there's all this organizational inertia that the candidate has no idea what's going on. Exactly. You know, it's not just the 10. I think it's like, the why and not knowing why or why not, like why it's going so slow. That's probably as frustrating as sitting in on 10 interviews. Quick analogy. 
as far as the idea, Aaron, of like applying and then having to jump through all these hoops and then waiting and then eventually you get rejected or you don't even find out. They just don't even tell you. And this happens a lot for actors. You know, actors get invited to, to audition. Then they get a callback. They get a second callback, a third callback. They do a screen test. You know, they jump through all the hoops and then eventually the part goes to someone else. And, you know, I've gotten a chance to be on both sides of that in terms of like being an actor and trying to get a role, but then also being a producer and trying to cast a role. And what's so interesting to me is, you know, when I, the the longer I've been in this business, the more kind of sides of the equation I've gotten to see, you know, ultimately it is true that there are two sides to every story because it's not just that, you know, producers want to jerk around some talent. It's really ultimately like there's nuances involved. Maybe there's three different people who would be very good for the part, and they're trying to figure out which of those three. Sometimes it comes down to something something as simple as scheduling. Sometimes it does come down to something as simple as ego. You know, one of the producers just doesn't like whatever, their agent. They just don't want to work with them. So there's a lot of nuance, I think, that often gets lost in these conversations. But just on its face, the idea that an employee is asked to jump through that many hoops to get a job I don't know. Something about that seems to me not just inefficient, but like there's a deeper problem going on there. Malpractice. <laughs> yeah, it's employment malpractice. I've experienced that from a consulting side, even as an entrepreneur now, where, you know, we've we've worked with companies to do a podcast and the exact scenario you talk about, Oscar, it's a little different because they are essentially giving us the green light to help them develop. But when we first initiate with the contract, we work with the company but it's usually someone in the echelon of leadership, that small group of people that green lights the project. Like, we want to bring these guys in. And not only that, they green light the, the idea. We want to do this kind of podcast to speak to this audience. Here's our call to action. Here's the thing we want to, here's our goals. And we start, and then there's a changing of the guard. Six months in, that person leaves, they, he, gets, he or she gets fired. And that's a parallel I can see develop here in the conversation between like, even when you're an outside third party, you don't have the insight to what's going on inside of the business. On the employer side, though, isn't it an advantage? Like you talked about actors and you talked about the entertainment industry. Like maybe it's because as an employee, and I'm trying to be open here and not I'm not advocating that the frustration isn't justified because it's freaking justified. After 11 interviews, it's justified. Speaking from the, the prism of like a, a younger enterprise. So let's say it's like a pilot show for a series that never existed before. The equivalent to that in the kind of the business world would be like a, a startup or a young company that just raised money. Extreme risk. Those first few hires, like in, in the case of the pilot show, like who you cast for that lead protagonist role. My experience, the startups, you know, the first hire, two, three, four, absolutely critical hires, absolutely critical hires. And it's not about the money spent on a mishire. It's about the time loss, right? Because you're building something you have like a, a product you're investing in that has a timeline where you don't hit or beat that timeline. You miss the market. You miss the opportunity to build the business in some cases. You know, I've in the past circumvented that again in my kind of independent days, hat days was, uh, or business days is kind of like this contract to hire scenario, which I've seen more and more startups do. It's tricky. It requires the candidate not to have an existing full-time job usually, but a scenario where it's like, Hey, you know what? We're going to trial one another. We're going to we're going to dance with one another for three months. It's a very generous contractor package with like, you know, a generous monthly or weekly fees. There's opt-outs for both sides after three months. And in a case where it works out, then they opt in. The problem is that obviously it's a whole bunch of complexity in trying to make that that type of arrangement work when the candidate is coming from a, an existing full-time job, both legal and just practical. What do you think about that setup, Azhar? The, the contract to work kind of deal. I think there's a little bit of apples and oranges going on because creative, you know, projects, specifically, for example, a TV show or like a casting decision, you know, unlike hiring, let's say, a chief, whatever, technologist, a technology officer for your startup, you know, you could fire that person. And yes, you lose time, uh, to Matt's point, but you can, you know, replace the, the that employee and you know, kind of keep the enterprise going, right? Whereas, you know, you cast somebody in a lead role in a movie and it flops, it's over. You took your swing and you missed. And so, you know, th- there's there's a little bit of a difference, I think, industry to industry, but the principle of trying to mitigate for, you know, because you're right, Aaron, ultimately this is all risk management, right? De- hiring decisions. 
why would why would a company want to interview somebody for you know 10 11 times i mean right they're only doing that because they feel compelled to do that to mitigate the risk and they're afraid to make that the disastrous hiring decision as matt was indicating or talking about you hire somebody based on how they present themselves and then it turns out they end up being a fraud but but also what's funny to me to hear that by the way matt is you know everybody's kind of a mini SBF in their resume anyway. Oh, 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 <laughs> Resumes are like permissible SBF behavior. You know, like you you try to spin, you try to exaggerate, you try to embellish, but then you know you're you're doing all that gaming gamesmanship to try to get the interview, and then once you get the interview, you know the resume is forgotten, and it's just all about how you do in the interview. And then right. clearly this guy, Mike, you know, was not really, you know, it's it's hard to say. Was he crushing the interviews? And that's why he's getting to keep advancing to the next level of the video he game? Must or he must have been. He must have been. Is he getting been. like C minuses and people are like, eh, I'm not sure if we should ding him yet and let's give him another shot. I don't know. Oh, I don't think you drag someone along to 11. He's had to have shown some talent, right? I mean, you don't, Matt, you wouldn't pull someone through 11 times if you weren't really considering them, right? Real quick, Matt, but you did also address this. You said that sometimes... It's the case that they're just defensively doing that to keep the candidate from going to a competitor. I bet that happens a lot. Let me provide a little more detail around those scenarios because it's not as facile as just that. You know, basically what I know happens and seen happen sometimes experienced prior to my, my entrepreneurship days, there are like occasional timelines for hiring where budget, for example, will free up. And that department is incentivized to drag along the candidate till either A, the budget frees up or the hiring freeze is unfrozen. And so the reason why competition still plays in regard because maybe the competitor doesn't have a hiring freeze or already has the budget. So you never, you never want to say no. The company's not incentivized to say no because they lose this talent. And, and I, I think that's the worst case scenario in a lot of cases. But, but back to the resume piece, I mean, I think your point though, Azhar, about resumes by definition and like, like the story around the junior congressman from uh, Long Island, George Santos, speaks to Santos, this, my God. Yeah, like there time. wasn't a lie that he didn't mention, right? And we've just come so accustomed to this thing. Like, like, like let's not even call it fucking resume anymore. It should be called like your personal sales deck. Can you highlight the story? You just, just even the top level, like. Right, really high level congressman from Long Island who there wasn't a, basically there isn't a, a whopper or a lie about personal background that he didn't say. Everything from his employment history at Goldman Sachs to you know, his personal heritage being Jewish. Turns out he wasn't Jewish. He said his parents were Jew-ish. Oh, and <laughs> it, it's just, it's laughable, right? You know, this guy's still like sitting around in, in, in Congress right now and they're let, let, letting him go. But the, the point is like, I think we've all become so accustomed to that. That's what the CV is. And so maybe from that perspective, like, yeah, we're going to interrogate this guy in 11 interviews because we can't trust shit anymore. You know, on the other side of that, for both of you, again, just to kind of do the ping pong thing here, there's that performance art aspect we talked about. It's on LinkedIn, but it also takes place in an interview. You're right, Asar. Yeah, you you have to put you have to do your best song and dance. Uh, you really do. You, you there is a little bit of you know SBF in everybody. But I would argue, from my experience, a lot of the times employers incentivize that song and dance. Like you're always going to have hustlers and hucksters who are who know that they can use a persuasion and language and and story and all these things in a negligent way in a, in a thoughtless like just for personal gain okay but i also think but bro, like a lot of times i've been interviews and it's like i was disincentivized just to be straight up myself because you just feel the sense of like the competition aspect puts you in a spot where you feel like you got to stand out and i'm not saying i would take it to that level of like completely making up stuff. Listen, like I remember early on when I was booking a, a monologue tour, Azar, you can relate to this. Early on when you're not a name, it's hard to get venues. I didn't make up stuff about my history, but I made up a manager. I used a fake email and I it was me, but I noticed that I would get more responses. I probably shouldn't be talking about this. <laughs> this is why we do the show. But like, I noticed we would get more responses from venues that would then come to me and then I could either book it or not book it. Yeah, but my course. point is I saw my percentages go up and I was like, ah, I'm kind of like, that's kind of like the SB, that's kind of fraudulent to a certain degree, but it's also just playing on the behavior 
that like, if I was like, yo, I got this really cool monologue and I'm a pretty great storyteller and I'll keep people in seats and sell tickets. People were like, yeah, F off. But if I was like, hey, I'm writing on behalf of Aaron, he's one of the top, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would get phone calls. So I understand why employees do it. And I also understand why employers feel like they have to defend against it. I don't know who's more culpable though. Three quick thoughts. One is, I think most entertainers do the same thing. I was Jeremy Higgins, my own manager for many years. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah J- Jeremy Higgins, I, and I would use Jeremy Higgins to help friends of mine to help friends of mine as well. So that's that's very normal. Okay, Number I'm not two, alone. I'm not, not alone. Yeah, no, in this. Not okay, alone. good. Thank Number you, two, I want to say this. Uh, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of fronting going on by on the part of the employee, but let's not forget there's also a lot of fronting going on on the part of the company. All right, how many of them are levered in debt, and they, and the employees don't know that. How many of them That's are right. actually three three months away from a run runway of going belly up and they're in the background frantically trying to raise some capital and the employees have no idea, right? So there's a lot of fronting going on uh, in all directions. So let's not pretend that somehow employees are the bad guys and these employer employers and these co- corporations are so transparent and, and honest. I mean, there's a lot of hype going on always, right? And the third quick thing is, on the question of being an actor, just very quickly, because I do, people message all the time whenever I participate in these sessions, and you know, there's a fair number of people who are interested in the field of acting. And one thing that I heard once from a casting director that I thought was really quite brilliant was the idea that an actor gets frustrated going out on all these auditions, but only booking one out of 100 parts. It's like, that's the job. The job of being an actor is auditioning. And then every so often you book a part and that pays you money and that allows you to live as a working actor. But the job of being an actor is chasing auditions and either putting yourself on tape or showing up for auditions or callbacks or what have you. So that is kind of a different thing because that is the job. Uh, and that is definitely markedly different than you know being an employee trying to score a specific job, which would then take you off the job market and, and you would go to work you know as a full as a full time employee. So there there is again industry to industry thing things are a little different. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I, before we we segue to, I think that's a good you know from one end the ten interviewee scenario, uh, ten interview scenario 11, to the other end. 11. Hey, 11, 11, Sorry, eleven. <laughs> I'm saying t- honoring Mike's experience here. The scenario of of paying candidates to interview or complete a case study, which I know is a, is a kind of a, it's on the other end of the spectrum. And something I've seen happen more and more in the uh, advertising creative space, maybe for, for good reason, you know, ideas, creative ideas can be repackaged and, and used in campaigns. But one point I wanted to make on the gaming piece, which is really interesting, I, I finally had a time to get through a book I've been wanting to get through for a while. It's called, it's called The Alignment Problem. Worth reading, Brian Christensen. It's all about like, if you're looking to understand machine learning and the way it works and how it impacts a lot of like institutions and corporations right now. It's a great book to read. In any case, from a recruitment perspective, it was making the point, for example, that these machines have been trained in a way to identify keywords and act on them in your resume that they may not act on otherwise, meaning you might not even be given an interview if the algorithm doesn't flag your resume for an interview. And the way they've been trained, for example, there they may be like, gen- there may be gender bias involved where it turns out if the resume has keywords like executed and all these words that, you know, frankly, some of us may think are a bit douchey, but the machine, you know, prioritizes those words. It turned out that those same words, though, there was a higher propensity amongst males than more, rather than females to put it. And so here you go. The subjects or the candidates being lined up for interviews were all males. I'm only bringing up this, this example because like there's all sorts of gaming happening to Usher's point, right? Like on the candidate side, you're like, I'm going to game my resume. Because the company's trying to game it by building machine, deep machining neural nets to like do their job for them. And, and so, yeah, I mean, like, it's a fair point. It's happening on both sides. So real quick, before we move on to the, the idea of, of paying candidates, at least in the interview process, which I think is fascinating. One quick thing, just to flesh out fairly the, the, um, on the employer side. One, what's been really interesting in this talk is that just kind of taking this one story from Mike and kind of zooming back what we really see is sort of a gaming process in which it continues to exponentially get weirder and weirder. Who knows we're going to be in 2024, right? Like, I mean, it's always been there. It always has been there. It's just kind of developing, mutating, and evolving in different forms. That's fascinating. I mean, just even opening up that perspective, I think, is valuable for anybody listening, and even just for me having this conversation. The second point, though, is the hybrid world, Matt, the remote world, Azhar too. Like one thing from the story that Mike talked about, it was, it was a Zoom interview. 
And I'm assuming this has predominantly been a Zoom interview. And I don't know how many, what the ratio were, but the point is, it's probably the majority. This is a remote position and he's on the phone or on the Zoom interview 11 times. It's still painful. Matt from Anazhar, like, does the remote digital hybrid space present even more complications for the employer when trying to pick and avoid that SBF nightmare that you were talking about before? I think, if anything, unfortunately, probably encourages and in, and almost incentivizes more rounds because from the lens of the employer, it's cheaper, right? Like physically, the candidate and, you know, I know all three of us over the generation where we probably recall literally having to get dressed and drive downtown wherever respective cities we lived in. And and there was a certain thrill to that. I admit, I, you know, I miss a bit, but there was also just a... You liked it? There was a bit of a thrill, but there was also a bit, it was a slug, right? A slog, sorry. You know, just driving and commuting down there and whatnot. And, you know, and any thrill died out by interview three or four, you know, driving four times or five times downtown. So, so the point is though, I, I think, I think unfortunately it probably incentivizes more of these, these rounds because it's just cheaper and the employer's perspective is, well, geez, the candidates just get, get on at their desk from home or from their bedroom on the camera. And they, you know, I, I don't think that's fair, but my gut tells me that's what it's probably doing. I don't miss, I don't miss trying to get interviews. I don't miss being interviewed. I don't miss going to interviews. I mean, look, the te- technology is obviously changing everything, right? Software is eating the world. You know, to Matt's point about how companies are, you know, even making use of, of AI and, and machine learning. And, you know, this is, we're in a new reality. You know, my own personal belief is young people growing up as digital natives and on the internet, but also specifically now on smartphones. There's a reason why poll after poll being taken of young kids in school, they all want to be content creators. They want to be YouTubers. They all now want to be TikTokers. Like, I think there's a new awareness that's starting to arise, which is, I don't, why should I have to work for somebody else? Why should I put forth all this effort? The work effort I'm putting forth is going to create financial value why should that financial value accrue to another human when I can sit here with my smartphone and an internet connection and figure out ways to put forth energy and effort that will create financial value that I can put in my own bank account? I just think there's going to be a, a more and more people opting out of being a paid employee or even a contractor when they figure out they can just they, there's just clever ways to work for yourself and make money that you can live off and be a digital nomad and, 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 and sleep on the beach. Incidentally, like I came across a new phrase. I think it was on like Instagram or one of these, or maybe it was fishbowl. Do you know what act my wage means? Act my wage. I mean, I can intuit, yeah. but what, what does it mean? Act my wage. What does that mean? I mean, it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's like, you know, you're being asked maybe to come in for the weekend to, you know, to do, to work on a project. You're going to take a look at your salary and see <laughs> if your salary commits you to do that or not. You're going to act your wage. And like, it's, it's like a new phrase. It's a, I, I want to call it a meme, but it's like a new phrase, new lingo that's been sloshing around Fishbowl and other networks. And, you know, I think it comes into it's the same prism or same realm of the argument or discussion we're having here about the interviews is like, yeah, like 11 interviews, eight, does this fit in with the perspective of who I think I am or like the, the, the profile of who think I am and what I'm worth? And the answer, if the answer is no, then I'm not going to go into the weekend to work. Or if the answer is no, I'm not going to go in for that third round of interview or fourth round of interviews. Let me take that exact example. And then guys, I want to put something out to you here. So this is directly from Fishbowl. This was a comment on the thread we we uh, started with where it was asking, what's the most interview rounds you've been through? Someone here posted, here's the chronological order, six rounds with Apple that included one design challenge plus one round of design feedback, 16 technical interviews. 13 micro interview thing in a day, one presentation to a group of 12 managers and one interview with a VP. Now, here's what's funny really quick. There's a comment underneath her says, was this for a director role? That same post responded, it was for product design engineer. Then the next comment no is, did you, get the, did you get the job? I hope so. There's no response from the original poster. <laughs> but okay, so talking about act your wage, talking about act your wage and talking about that push and pull. I mean, at what point, Matt Azhar, do you start to pay this person during that process? 
for the right. love of God. I, it doesn't say that this is paid. You've mentioned this as a tactic, but at some point, and same with Mike as well, I'm sure he's thinking like, yo, I mean, come on. Like, do I get paid for my time here? What that's worth? I don't know. What he thinks it's worth? I don't know what they think it's worth. But using what we just pulled from Fishbowl and really kind of rounding out the conversation, do we need to start paying people if it's going to be this extensive? Maybe. I mean, I'll start really quickly here. So having done the startup thing, I'm really used to when interviewing, actually being the one interviewed, meaning like I'm used to going in, in sales mode, trying to convince someone to give my startup of five people a chance over a, you know, a cush job with half a million stock options, you know, at Google. I'm really used to that. The times where I started working for bigger companies, usually post acquisitions, I've realized like a lot of other folks aren't used to that. Like they come in a bit entitled. And I think in the past that more or less worked with the labor market. I think we've talked about this in previous shows. It doesn't work anymore. Like I think a lot of those same companies are a surprise going in and seeing how unaccommodating the candidate is because they can go to others. So yeah, if you ask me, I, I'm really used to being the one selling, going into an interview, trying to prove the worth or value of myself or the company that I'm building. And so, yeah, I, we actually have in the past, usually for creative roles, maybe it's a case study that involves some designs or whatnot. And we just want to make it clear, like we have no interest in reusing or repurposing this for any campaign. We really just want to see how you think. Do you think on your feet? You have the ability to abstract and think more creatively. And so here's some money just, just to show in good faith, right? That's our intention. Not to really compensate you for this stuff because we know your going rate is $300 an hour, right? Like you got to be careful. And we've done that. And usually it's, it's met with uh, goodwill on the other side where they're like, yeah, thanks. And, and in many cases we pass and the candidate, it's not much. They might $200, $300, $400, $500, but they at least feel they, their time wasn't completely wasted. I, I just find the idea of being paid to get interviewed so weird. Like just an inherently, inherently bizarre. If you're paying me, I work for you. You know, I, I provided you a service. I provided you value. You paid me. That's a that's a tran that's an employment transaction. It's a contractor transaction. That's not me getting interviewed. And if if the company tries to frame it as that, it's like, oh, here's some goodwill here. Give us your ideas. Here's a couple hundred bucks. It's like, no, you're trying to steal my ideas. That's what's oh, happening. Oh man, you are a criminal. You are you are you are <laughs> you are you are committing. You are stealing my ideas, and you're underpaying me intentionally. And you're trying to pretend like you're doing it out of goodwill. You're not. And I think that in these in these scenarios with like these excessive rounds of interviews, what occurs to me is that there's kind of three principles at work. Number one, basic supply and demand. Number two is leverage, actually. And then number three is sort of like, you know, I, I maybe call it gamesmanship. You know, like I wonder if this guy, Mike, right, if he's getting interviewed 10 times and to your point, like Aaron, like, oh, they must really like him if they keep calling him back. You know, maybe after interview two or three or four, if he said, I'm done interviewing, bro. You want to hire me, hire me. Otherwise, stop wasting my time. You know, at that point, that what gets revealed is who actually had the leverage here. If they say, well, we're going to pass. He, he thought he had leverage, but he was delusional, right? And, it, and, and I think that's fine. Knowing your worth is so important in this whole scenario. So many of these employees are actually chumps and suckers because they have way more leverage vis-a-vis -vis the company than they realize. And they're just allowing themselves to get exploited and, and getting all this value extracted through this interview process. And they have no one to blame but themselves, actually. Now, if it's the case that they think they have more leverage than they have, and they try to pull that leverage by saying, no, I don't, I'm not going to do another interview. And then the company says, okay, goodbye. Well, then guess what? Again, supply and demand. I feel like I myself have gone through this. I, I, again, I was sharing this with you guys earlier. Like, I, I know so many stand-up comedians. So many stand-up comedians. And they all think they're the funniest comedian that ever lived, right? And, and, and my, myself included. I, I have some delusion. Obviously, it's a delusional enterprise to think that you're so funny, people should pay money to come hear you tell jokes is an inherently delusional proposition. It's ridiculous, okay? <laughs> but, but, the, but, but the notion that somebody believes that and then they go about start, you know, I call it what about me-ism. You know, stand-up comedy is full, about, full of what about me-ism. You know, it's like, right. well, what about me? Somebody gets the thing. What about me? What about me? Yeah, what about you, bro? Write some jokes. The delusion is people think they're just because they're funny, somehow they should be paid. It's like, well, how much is your act worth? Do you have an act? In other words, what's an act? It's an hour of stand-up comedy. Somebody would pay money to come here you do, 
okay? And in a year, how much can you generate off that act? If you could generate $5,000 a year, you have a $5,000 act. If you have, if you can generate a million dollars a year, you have a million dollar act. But ultimately, it's like, how much is your act worth? Yeah. So what, what, what about museum sounds a lot like entitlement, right? And we've talked about this in previous shows. There's definitely like a demographic age lens to this. Boomers perceiving young Gen Zers and millennials as more entitled than they should be. I think this is like the funniest example because like you're getting paid to be interviewed. I'm sure like there's a whole perspective on that. But here's a framework to think about this as her. Maybe that may make more sense to you. So like in a marketplace, there's always fraudsters. And maybe in this case, in the marketplace of, of candidates and hirers, employers, the, the fraudsters are the ones who are not really serious about hiring. They're just kind of lackadaisically going there and wasting candidates' time. And, and, and so in that setup, having kind of a binary fee, even if it's just nominal, maybe eliminates, you know, 80% of the fraudsters. And like to point as an example, like, hey, what did Musk do at Twitter? He's making the claim that like, I'm going to institute a verification system. What's the verification system? Pull out your credit card and pay me $10 a month, right? That's his fraud detection system. And you can laugh it off. It's probably 80% effective. I don't know about your experience with Twitter. Mine's been a little cleaner since then. And so like, that's one way framework I kind of view this as, you know, it's a nominal fee, eliminate the, the fraudsters, the fraud hires, you know, employers who are not sincere, don't have intention, legit intention, maybe don't even have the budget. Like they're just in there literally wasting your time. And meanwhile, that hiring manager doesn't even have the budget approved. It's like, why the fuck are you wasting my time when you don't even have the P&L to make this hire? My gut tells me that that happens in a case when you're going 11 interviews or 11 rounds. You know, Matt, that's really interesting. I never thought about it as a means to hold. I'm not saying it's it's sound, but I'm saying like considering it, I never thought about it as a means to hold the employer accountable as well. I was always, I'm always thinking about it for an employee, like, yo, pay me something for what I'm worth. And I'll start with what you're saying. So that's, first, that's interesting. The idea that paying even a nominal fee holds primarily the employer to a certain degree, even if it's a little bit of money and it's not a ton, there's still some rise in accountability because it is money. It's not just taking someone's time. But then to Azar, to your point, look, when do you know to be like, hey, pay me what I'm worth. This needs to end. When does Mike stand up to the window and go, I'm not going to take this anymore? Like, when does he do that and say, I'm going to be paid? Look, two things I thought about here that I've become aware of just in this conversation. One, I just want to honor the need that every employee or job seeker comes from a different space. And those spaces vary from comfortable to incredibly uncomfortable and desperation. So I I don't want to keep hounding on that, but I do think it's an important thing to gauge the behavior that, you know, if you're comfortable, then maybe 11 rounds isn't too bad. Maybe you do it and you're just, just part of the game. But on the other side, you know, it's like, if you're really hurting and this is time and time is money, you're losing. And if you lose that gamble, there is real impact on your life and your family and your state and your being and what you got to do. So there's that. But what's interesting is this, I'm thinking when you were talking about this awakening, Azhar, you talk about the actor, you know, I think the first kind of thing that I saw, and even for me, you know, auditioning and starting off traditionally as an actor, I hated auditioning and and I knew it was the job, but I still hated it. And what I recognized was what I really hated was the dependency of waiting on someone else to get me a job. And what's funny is, Back in the day, at least, before there was a way to be a content creator or do a podcast, what we did was we created a solo show. You know, you it was kind of like, you know what? That's what I did. I was like, I'm tired of auditioning. I'm tired of saying other people's monologues. I'm tired of reading, you know, David Mamet and doing my best, like, ABC. I'm tired of it. I'm going to do my own show. And that was that first sort of awakening. And really, it's an entrepreneurial endeavor. So I'm thinking about Mike here. And I'm wondering if this is Mike's breaking point where Mike actually says, you know what, this is where I become part of this awakening. And maybe it's the realization of this. I can't believe I'm defending this. I don't want to say I'm defending inefficiency, but maybe, tell me if I'm wrong here, guys, maybe regardless if it's 10 interviews, 11 or one, when you choose to be an employee of any place where you are subjugated to their rules, their salary, all that kind of stuff, part of that means you're subjugated to their process. The real game genie cheat code to get out of that is to go out on your own. Maybe that's part of the awakening is realizing not just that there's an opportunity to make money and go on your own and not have a schedule and worry about bosses. Maybe it really is about agency. It's about saying, you know what? 
I'm not going to be dependent, whether it's one interview, 11 interview, I'm not doing this shit anymore. Right. I think I started it right at the very top of the show, honestly, where it's like, by round five or six, alarm bells should be going off and like, what's this company? <laughs> like, let's do some due diligence here and let's audit this company if I'm actually seriously considering them. And I think that's, that's right. Like the same way the alarm bells would go off there, you could then abstract it out and say, well, well, geez, maybe, let me, maybe I can go an independent, maybe set up as a, a shop as a 1099 contractor, or if you're more aggressive, come up with an idea. And you're seeing that, right? I, I think Uzzer hit on that too. You're, you're seeing that in the, at least in the kind of the, the content creator universe, but even just the number of like, we, we hit on this previous show, the number of LCs set up in 2022 all-time high, right? Like people are in many ways reacting and responding to some of, you know, what we can call corporate inefficiencies. You know, that's why people are resigning, right? That's why people are willing to, you were mentioning a study where people are willing to take less money to have their time back, right? I mean, fundamentally, these are all indicators of the same underlying phenomenon, which is people are realizing, employees are realizing that, you know, the fundamental rules of the game have always been very lopsided and very draconian and very much in favor of of the owners and not not the laborers. That's why unions were, you know, invented in the first place. So these tensions have been around for a long time. It's just that technology and personal technology, the ability to have a smartphone with the internet connection suddenly gives you the same power that, you know, giant corporations had 20 years ago. You know, what's interesting though, that I, I still think will occur and, and check me here. I mean, cause this is all perspective, but kind of rounding out and, and pulling focus back to the beginning of the story. Let me just say this. We can all agree the 11 ridiculous interviews or what we put, what we cited from Fishbowl, that guy going through 13 micro interviews in a day, guys going through a living hell guy, guys, this is Dante's Inferno. This is unbelievable. I think you just coined a new phrase, micro interview. I've never heard that before. That's a, that's an interesting one. What's a, what's a micro interview? I, I mean, the way you describe it is like these like little micro sessions, there's like 13 of them it's in speed, one day. It's, it's I mean, they're interviewing for a job. It's speed dating, dating for a job. It's speed dating, it's, that's dating right. for a job. Yeah, right. the bell, ding, the bell goes off. So look, he went through it. Mike went through it. So many people who are listening right now on the live Fishbowl app, they've gone through it. They're feeling that. We've gone through it. The truth is it shouldn't take 11 interviews. And here's the reality. Some people like that idea of having shit taken care of for them. And I don't mean that in a negative way. And I don't want to say that in a way that that's okay. Like some people really, they, they want to come to work. They don't want their life to blend in with their, you know, it, they want structure and they want some level of dependency. But I think for a, there are a lot more people in that dependent space to your point, to both your points that I think are going to be exiting and are already starting to do so. There's a lot more people who are entrepreneurial and have that agency that want to go out there and do it. So let me ask you this real quick question. You guys, like the story of Mike, can you like end, like what? how does his story end? What happens next for Mike? I guess I'll start. The worst case scenario is he takes it out on his current, he takes it out on his current employer as a disgruntled employee, you know, starts quiet quitting at the job, you know, not delivering projects his existing company, which had nothing to do with that, you know, fiasco, it sees the worst of it. That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is, yeah, I mean, I think to Uzzard's point, like a revelation, awakening happens, maybe a great awakening and, you know, takes on a, starts an LLC at 1099 and decides to service these same companies, but as a contractor and, and charge, you know, triple the, the service fees that he would get as, versus a wage, wage salary. Yeah, I think that Mike ends up becoming an interview consultant, and he starts a company. He starts a company called Micro Interview, <laughs> and then he he just teaches people how to do interviews and get it, get how to get interviews and do interviews, and then you know if he can build that business, he can also start consulting to companies and teach them how to interview uh, in a more efficient manner, so they don't have to interview candidates ten plus times. That's a real value to the economy. Can you imagine the infomercial for that one? Where he's like, I've been through 11 interviews. I know what that's like. And then you have the B-roll of him just being like, I'm tired of it. <laughs> he's like, I was you. I've been you. But now there's a new way. Here's my 12-step yeah, program. I mean, yeah, way, just to, a whole to, before we conclude, to be honest with you, through the course of this hour, I've actually become more sympathetic to the company. Because, because like, Me too. you know, honestly, it depends on the job. How, how significant, how mission critical, how big of a role, how much money at stake for the role. Maybe it does take 10 interviews, you know, especially if it's over Zoom. You know, it's not like it's that inconvenient. 
you know, 10 half hours is five hours of your time to potentially score a seven figure job. Like yeah, maybe that's reasonable. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm just going to, my next interview is not going to, it's going to be a micro interview. I'm just going to start scheduling micro interviews with all future candidates. Yeah. By the way, by the way, when, when you described it as a uh, speed dating for jobs, I just realized you just reinvented a job fair. That's right. Yeah. That's a, that's Literally an amazing upgrade. Yeah. An amazing upgrade. I've told you guys know this. I was in an interview for a theater position for $35,000 a year. $35,000 a year is about 10 or 15 years ago. And I thought it was the job of my life. And I went down there, I went through, I think it was probably seven or eight in-person interviews for like a theater community advisor, something. Right. And he got, it was me and another candidate. And he brought me in, even just did me an email, brought me in to let me know they went with the other candidate. And then told me, I just want to let you know, I had, he said, I had to ask myself either if I hire you, it's going to be the best decision of my life or the worst decision of my life. He said, and I'm not going with you. And I'm so hey, glad yeah. I didn't because I'd be capped at 35K a year. And I'm not going to mention his name, <laughs> but now this son of a bitch, where are you living? Where do you, what do you how, how is that going? How is it? Well, how about another <laughs> round of grants crawling to the people to give you grants? So listen, I don't mean to be a little bit boastful and, and egotistical and uh, testosterone driven, but I'm so glad I had that awakening because I'd still be crawling around doing all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? I appreciate sharing, Aaron. That's, that's a beautiful story. And I think it's a reminder for all of us. You know, there's a lot of bad shit that happens in life. And your first impulse to think is that, woe be to me, misery. And then, you know, what you realize is that bad shit was the best thing ever. But the lever, like that depends on your ability to synthesize it and move forward and act on it. And I know it sounds trite, but that's totally true. It's totally true. I think your story speaks to that. It's a great story. I got no final wisdom other than quote, I think from some philosopher, you could look it up on the internet, but he just said, uh, you know, life only makes sense looking backwards. The problem is it has to be lived going forwards. <laughs> hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode and make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.